reading of God's word. Please stand for the reading of God's word. From Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, pray with me briefly. Dear Father, please open our hearts, open our ears and our eyes to receive your word. Work in our hearts the work that only you can do, that we might become more like Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, maybe seated. So good morning. Happy Reformation Day. And I'm, I'm always very happy to reflect on uh, Luther's life exactly 504 years ago. I want to reflect some on what caused Luther to react the way he did, what pushed him to action in the face of so much resistance, what issues was, was he confronting. And that's part of my inspiration for the passage and, and our topic today. So the problems that confronted Luther, especially in his visit to Rome, he saw great moral corruption in the church. He saw uh, the church leadership who was greedy for political power, for riches. You know, he saw <laughs> great opulence and, and wealth. He saw great sexual immorality, even among all the clergy. And there was great division within the church. And why did that happen? Well, they weren't working out their salvation into every corner of their lives. They had the wrong foundation. They weren't looking to God in this decisive saving work in, in his grace, right? When you think of justification. But they also missed that God continues to work in us, working out of that salvation to make us more like Christ, to work his will and his good pleasure. The Western church was depending in part on their own works in cooperation with God over time. And yet, you know, we can't save ourselves. The dead can't give life. We can't purify our own hearts. And the church then had a very small view of Christ's work in salvation, in his sacrifice, and because of a small view of sin and grace. One of the chief issues that Luther was dealing with, especially you know, right now, this, the spark of the Reformation, was fighting against indulgences, that you could purchase with money God's grace and forgiveness. Luther couldn't stand, he couldn't stand by while the church was missing the, the beauty and wonder of the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you can purchase forgiveness and grace with money, uh, you know, often sin abounded. People didn't take it very seriously. And when it comes down to it, you can always just pay your time in purgatory, right, and, and deal with it that way and wait until you're holy enough for heaven. So this is a simplified picture, but you can see how having the wrong foundation 
leads to great sin and great problems in the church. Problems that need reformation. The Western church as an institution needed reformation. The local congregations and local pastors needed reformation. And individuals living in sin needed reformation. There were many great mottos that that came out of the Reformation, like the solas that we study often. Uh, One that came a little later means something to the effect of the church should be always reforming. So that's what I want to focus on today in honor of Reformation Day. I want to call you, Bethel, to be always reforming. To give a general idea of what this means, Merriam-Webster defines reforming as follows. To make better in behavior or character, to remove errors, defects, deficiencies, or deviations. I also really like the etymology, you know, the roots of the word reform. It means exactly what you would think. It means to form again. And that can mean kind of two different things, right? It can mean looking, uh, <laughs> forming something again to make it better forming something anew to solve problems. Or it can mean to form again, looking back to original design because it's been changed or damaged. And spiritual reformation is effectively both. Uh, But to see what I mean, let's honor sola scriptura and look closely at our highest spiritual authority in in the Bible. And let's see what Paul has to say about reforming because what he has to say is much more important than what I have to say. So let's look to Philippians. And I want to give some, a little bit of background on Philippians so that you can catch a glimpse of Paul's main purposes and motivations in this instruction and in calling the Philippians to be always reforming. Philippians is a letter about friendship. It's about partnership in the gospel. It's about joy. Paul calls to joy, I think, 11 times in this little short letter. And yet there's also great sadness too, some real sadness to wrestle with. In uh, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says he doesn't know if he will live or die. You know, we have to think about this in the context that Paul is facing. He's imprisoned and he might die soon. So he wants to prepare this beloved congregation in Philippi for either possibility. He wants to continue partnering with them. He needs their support, and he's still active in ministry. He says it's still fruitful ministry, even in prison, where the whole imperial guard has heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet, he wants to prepare the Philippians for his eventual death sooner or, or later, perhaps quite soon. And no responsible leader would leave his people without uh, preparing for you know, stability and the future of the group, of the family in particular. So this Philippians is, is like a farewell speech, but you know, a letter because he's imprisoned. Because he might not make it back. And it's a lot of what we would expect from a farewell. He's reflecting on the bonds of their relationship. They're clearly very close. He gives a very pointed and meaningful prayer for them. He exhorts them morally, you know, to live excellently, reminding them and calling them to be like Jesus and to especially points them to hope in Jesus. And this fits well. We think of kind of our last will and testaments, our 
sort of what, social institution is kind of economic. Before we die, we want to deal with our possessions or our money. So that's what we take care of. But for Paul here and for the, the Greek world at the time, uh, people looked to their relationships, the social connections with people. That's what provided their security in the future. That's what secured future. And I want to, in particular, highlight two of Paul's main themes so we can keep this in mind as we look through his, his instruction here. Uh, it's the unity in the church, self-sacrificial love in unity of the church, and being a light to the nations by being holy, right? Our witness to Christ to those around us. Obviously, Paul is a missionary, so he's always thinking about our witness. And that's what he's, he's calling the Philippians to Cause them to be humble, to sacrifice for one another, to be other-centered in their thinking. And this is particularly important when they're facing a transition of leadership, right? There's a lot of kind of a special concern for division within the church. And we don't face that, but we still struggle with divisions in the church and certainly with our, within our society at large. Uh, so we want to be careful because that damages our witness to the world. So let's look at, at Paul's instructions again. Verse 12, if you'll read along with me. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what does it mean to work out our own salvation? That seems like a strange command when you think about Paul is always going on about how salvation and justification is always by grace, right? We don't live under the law. We're not saved by good works. Well, let's walk through it together. So first, it's work. It's continuous, sustained effort, counter to what we might expect from Paul. So it's work, and it's ours, it's, it's our salvation. It's something that already belongs to us. We already have in some fashion, but yet it's not yet complete or fully uh, manifest, right? And it's our own. We have to work out our own salvation. Paul won't work out our salvation for us or for the Philippians. Um, while we're certainly called to do this as a congregation, you know, our our sanctification, our perseverance is a group project. And yet, uh, it's kind of ultimately down to the individual, isn't it? You know, like James won't always be here or able to help us navigate through the issues of daily life. And it's salvation, and Paul uses salvation, he often differentiates between justification and salvation. Justification tends to look backwards, right? It's a more decisive event, this God declaring us as legally just. But salvation is looking forward. And it's often a big view of from everything from our current growth in grace to be more like Jesus all the way to our final judgment where we're you know, declared righteous and accepted and even to being glorified with Jesus. So this is, is very much looking forward and it's a long process so what does it mean to work out our own salvation? What is this command, if we put all that together? 
And I think it's essentially obedience, like heart-level obedience. It's growing in grace, so um, growing in obedience, killing sin. It's growing in the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. I think I got most of those. Uh, we are... We are reconciled with God. We are in right relationship with God, and yet we don't always live that way, do we? We're children of God, and we need to digest that, to apply it in day-to-day life, to work it into all the little nooks and crannies of our hearts, to carry our salvation to conclusion, to, to grow and living like children of God. And this is a tough command. This is a large task. Work out your own salvation. Grow to be like God. And to do it with fear and trembling, which if you feel the size of the task there, you can't help but do it with fear and trembling because we stand before a mighty God. We were singing about how God is a mighty fortress, Especially the psalm highlighted just what a mighty and fierce God we stand before. And all humans will one day stand before him and be judged. That's a sobering prospect. We, in our consciences, know that we do evil. God cannot simply pass over evil. Interestingly, one way that God describes the essence of our sin is that we aren't thankful to him for good things. We have so many good things in this life, in this world, and yet how often are we truly thankful, even as believers, but you know, how, much, how much more unbelievers? We cannot do this in our own merit, in our own power. We can't save ourselves, and so there's a real tension here. And we need to wrestle with that. We need to feel that, that tension, that we can't face God's justice in ourselves. But in Christ, in Jesus, we can please God in obedience. That is the core question, isn't it? How do we people who are sinners, you know, who do evil. How can we please God in obedience? Well, it's the exact same way that we work out our salvation. We do three things to do that. We're going to walk through this here with Paul. So we look back to Jesus. We look forward to Jesus. And then we look to our our right confidence like Jesus. So we look back to Jesus for a few reasons. Paul gives Jesus here, right before this passage, as an example of how we should live. We should follow this example. Uh, But even much more, he points back to Jesus' work, his work in salvation, what he has done for us. So we're called to work, but he's pointing back to what Jesus did, what he did to save us from God's judgment, to reconcile us with God. And if, in faith, you accept this free gift of life and peace, we must look back to Jesus to see who we are because he has changed us. And so to to reform, we need to know who we really are. 
That is a need that our culture wrestles with every day, feels that need to figure out who we are. We're often exploring and, and of course, turning inward. You know, that's kind of our, our culture's main way of solving the problem is to look inside yourself, figure out who you are that way. But we'll never find clarity that way. We'll never find truth that way. We'll never find the power to be who we want to be or who we should be either. So we look to Jesus. Now let's literally look back in the passage in the text here Paul, where Paul gives the example of Christ. At the start of chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, uh, participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is calling the Philippians, and let's extend this to here, you know, at Bethel, to be united in selfless love, sacrificial love, to be united in purpose and ministry, that we would love one another with the love we have for ourselves, that we would have united purpose and ministry even though we have a diversity of gifts and strengths and experiences. So I ask, do you count others more significant than yourself? I'll confess that I often fail, uh, fail at this, not usually in a mean-spirited way, but just because I'm you know, absorbed with myself, with my own life, my own concerns. This isn't an easy habit of the heart and the mind to change or correct. So where do we find this selfless mind and heart? Well, he tells us, verse 5, it's, it's ours in Jesus. So it's ours, and yet... We need to work to live that way. Paul is calling us to live that way. What's yours if you're united with him in faith? So live out who you are. Be who you are in Jesus. Be who you are. That seems so simple. That's a a great big theme for Paul throughout his writings. And it's probably most clear in Romans 6 when he confronts whether we should continue to sin. Although we're believers, right? Uh, Should we continue to sin that grace may abound? Should we sin since we're, we're dead to the law? People kind of messing up Paul's teachings there. But his answer, by no means. How can we who died in sin, died to sin, still live in it? You were once slaves of sin, but you have become slaves of righteousness. So be who you are in Christ. If you have faith in Jesus, he has changed you. You are a new creation. You have a new heart, new affections. You have been reborn spiritually. You're a child of God, so live that way. Live authentically and truly in in who you are in faith. So let's see what what that means, where that comes from. In uh, the next section here, verses 5 through 11, Paul gives us the example of Christ. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in earth, in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So here we have the story of God from before creation all the way to, you know, to now and into the future. And he is fully glorified. We have a wonderful example, the best example of selfless, sacrificial love. But even more than that, we see Jesus' work. He would suffer rejection and punishment and death to reconcile sinners to God. So Jesus' work is an inspiring example, but it's also a powerful reality in the lives of believers. He's an example, and he's also the means. In Jesus, by trusting in his gift, we find spiritual life. We're given new hearts to love God, to love what is good, to receive eternal life. And he finished this 2,000 years ago. So we're looking back in the text. We're also looking back chronologically, right? He finished that. And the moment you have faith, you trust this sacrifice, this offering, then God decisively declared you just as well. Your status before God is right and holy. So we look back to that as well, to what Jesus has done. But for the full picture, so we see God working through Jesus in us in the past, but for the full picture, we need to look forward too. Who are we becoming? What happens in the end? So we've looked back to Jesus. Let's look forward. Looking forward to Jesus. If we are to reform as a congregation, as a group, or as individuals, we need to know what the goal is, where we're going, what our purpose is, who we want to be. So who should we be? Let's go forward in the passage to verses 14 through 18, and Paul tells us, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So here we see we are to be blameless and innocent. We're to be children of God without blemish. We are children of God now, but, but we have plenty of blemishes, don't we? We don't want to be like Israel. That's a lot of the language here is, is calling us back as the crooked and twisted generation, the children of God who chased after idols, who did not have faith, who, when they were obedient, they were grumbling and complaining. You know, it wasn't heart-level obedience. It wasn't humble. That's not who we want to be. So we're saved in Jesus, and we're being made like him. It's not just that he takes the punishment, right? But, but if we are in right relationship with God, we have to live up to that 
to be, you know, if our, our end goal is to live with God, evil can't be in God's presence. So we must be purified. We must be made holy. We must be made righteous. And we will one day be pure and holy without sin. We're being made Jesus' beautiful bride. We should have the family likeness of God to reflect him, to remind people of him, and not just of Adam to have the likeness of sin. So we should be living in Christ, and then we will one day be glorified with Jesus. We will be pleasing to the Father. We will have heavenly citizenship, but we wouldn't make very good citizens of heaven right now, would we? So this is a, it's a process. We're not quite there yet. So we know where we're going, but we're not quite there yet. So we have to look to find where our, our proper confidence should be. How do we become pleasing to God? How do we change and grow? So back to our main passage, therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The only proper confidence that we can have when we're always reforming or working out our salvation as we move forward in life, the only proper confidence that we can find the power to become like Jesus, to be self-sacrificial, and loving, to finish your race, as Paul mentions here, is that God is working in us. We're called to work, but our confidence is that God is working in us. So let's think about how that works. If some people misunderstand this, this tension and see Paul as teaching that we're saved by works, that we're, we merit our salvation, and it's not by grace and faith, but, uh, well, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 can help us here. Boyce describes this as a mini-commentary on this passage in Philippians. I'll read it for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in, Je- in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God prepares them and works in us, but we walk in these good works. That's a great picture of walking. God has worked in us and prepared us. He's also worked grace into our hearts and prepares this path for us to be progressively aligned and made like Jesus, to be made holy and good. But we still have to walk that path, even if there's some really steep, intimidating hills in the way sometimes, right? By faith in Jesus, you must and you can walk this path in obedience. Uh, so a very simple example is that you, you have to plug in a toaster to power for it to make toast, right? <laughs> and that's kind of silly, but you know, this, the power is coming from the outside, even though it's, it's a natural work of the toaster. A much better example is the branch and the vine. In John fifteen four, Jesus says, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. So we as branches must abide in the vine to bear fruit. And I love the lame man in John 5. He can't walk, but at the word of Jesus, he stands up, he grabs his mat, 
and he walks away. What he cannot do in his own strength, he can, must, and does do in the strength that the Lord provides. And working out our salvation is exactly like that, growing in obedience, is walking just like the lame man. So a few brief comments on application, a few practical points. So I focus kind of on on being made holy, seeing Jesus, growing to be like him, that's certainly the core, right? Everything else kind of follows behind that if we're growing in holiness like that. But I I do want to highlight a few things uh, out of the big themes, if you remember the big themes of unity and, and our witness. Some applications for us as a congregation. So we're called to holiness as a congregation to work together to mature in faith, to kill sin, to... Uh, to learn to pursue the fruit of the Spirit together. And what does that look like? Well, we use the means of grace, right? And part of that is worshiping together and studying the Word together and preaching. Uh, I also want to note, though, that we should be investing in our ministries here. To be present. To give yourself sin. And maybe the particular forms of the ministries at Bethel need to change? I don't know. I haven't been here long enough to have an informed opinion on that, so that's, you know, I'm not presuming to know that, but, but we should care. As individuals and families, we should examine where we are investing our time and energy and our love. And we're also called to be a light to the world in word and in deed. But above all, we're called to love one another and That is the key to our witness, right? Jesus said that we will be known for our love for one another. Do we love one another in such a special way, such a deep way that the world asks what's going on there, you know, that there's something special there? What's the reason for this love? Do you see that reaction? These are, I think two big practical questions we should be asking ourselves and and the unity of the church loving one another and bearing witness to the world. So I call you to be always reforming, mostly in looking to Jesus, right, and what he's done, who he is, who he is making us to be, and remembering that our confidence is in what God is doing. It's not first about what we're doing, but what God is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, let me close in prayer. Dear Father, thank you.